Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology. Today's episode is the second in a special series we're calling Beyond GPU, taking a look at edge AI computing challenges and solutions with help from guests at leading vendors and super-scale global tech brands leading the world's most advanced hardware platform teams on the planet. Today's guest in the Beyond GPU series is Mark Heaps, Vice President of Brand and Creative at Grok. Grok is a tech company specializing in simplifying compute challenges to accelerate workflows in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and high-performance computing. Mark joins us on today's show to talk about challenges facing business leaders in building the infrastructure necessary to scale enterprise AI capabilities. Throughout the episode, Mark examines the process across infrastructure, model development, and model deployment, offering compelling use cases and explanations for the technology behind them along the way. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Mark, thanks so much for being with us on the podcast this week. Yeah, absolutely, Matthew. Thanks for having us on there. We're going to be talking about problems and solutions all the way through the AI development chain from infrastructure to model development and on to deployment. So I think a lot of our listeners probably know the format of the show. In the beginning, we're talking about problems. And towards the middle, we start to look at the ways that business leaders are using data tools to follow those solutions. But I just want to break that down to each stage of the process and really, really digest where we're seeing the rubber hit the road. So let's start with infrastructure. What do you see as the biggest problems currently facing business leaders when it comes to building the infrastructure necessary to scale enterprise AI capabilities? Yeah, it's a good question and a big question. I think you know a really important thing first to realize is we're sort of in the Wild West stage of this enterprise AI movement that's happening, the explosion of LLMs, et cetera, right? And so we know that's going to become more focused and we're going to see lots of verticals break out from that. But the way that I like to think of this, you know, in today's moment, in the current moment, is that if you think back to the internet, right? And and I remember having access to sort of first generation of internet, go back to those 90s, in fact, where consumers were starting to get to it. You had all this wonder about what you had access to. And it was really powerful to, to have that experience. But think back to the first time you saw images loading on the internet, it loaded one or two rows of pixels at a time. They called that interlacing, you know, when it was loading the graphics. And you could have 40 seconds or more to load a single picture while you were getting the content that you were trying to read or have access to. And that was painful, but nobody felt pain about it at that time. We were just excited to have access. The reality is, is the business leaders today are aware of what's available in AI and they're thinking about the infrastructure they need strategically to serve those workloads, to serve those customers, those end users. But what we know is that end users are going to be demanding real-time experiences, right? As, as fluid as a conversation that you and a friend could have standing side by side. So you can't have something that's painfully slow. And by you know the reckoning of most of the experts, although today we see some of these LLMs like ChatGPT and others, being kind of clunky and, and a little bit jerky when they load your results, that's exciting to have access to, but we know that needs to be faster. So business leaders are really thinking about the infrastructure that they're going to need to serve real-time, fluid, and fluent natural language processing for all of their customers. 
Absolutely. And I think even in the advent of LLMs, I want to say a lot of this comes from the generation of the 90s children, everybody who grew (laughs) up with the internet, that even like there's this sense of, uh, even with all the controversy and even some of the acceptance about misinformation, the hallucinations that even my mom knows about at this point, there's a certain expectation that we need to get over that or that needs to be solved quickly. And I think that's the precedent of we all remember 1998 and feeling like, oh, wow, this is great that it takes forever to load. And then by 2004, that was that was a thing of the past. I also want to ask about the infrastructure challenges in terms of supply chains. This is not just about, you know, raw AI capabilities, manpower, but there is a, a very tangible problem, at least when it comes to, you know, the chips showing up on time. What are enterprises trying to scale these AI? AI capabilities facing in that area? Yeah, it's a huge problem, right? I mean, especially here in the US, North America in general, we're hearing from customers that we talk to that from the incumbent providers, they're being quoted anywhere from, you know, 12 to 18 months to be able to get the the chips, the hardware, the systems that they need to be able to stand up their business if they're building something that's on-prem. Now, a lot of folks are saying, look, for rapid deployment, we're going to go to the cloud. But those hyperscalers that are providing that service by the cloud also have to be able to buy that hardware. And so you don't want to, you know, be forced to pay sort of a tax of preference, almost like a class society to be able to bump up in the sales queue to get your equipment. So we have a real challenge today with meeting the demand at the rate that the AI explosion is happening. And this is why I think we're seeing so many institutions developing their own silicon, developing their own chips. And it's why it makes a lot of space for people to build specialized processors, like the language processor that we have for these very particular types of workloads. And if you're a startup business or small to medium business who says, look, we are contingent to our investors, our stakeholders, et cetera, that we're up and running in the next six to nine months, then you simply can't wait to start developing for your actual system on something 12 months from now. Yes. And even all the AI in the world in terms of predictive analytics, making sure that the supplies are going to show up on time, everything, all of our wonderful logistics guests come on the show and tell me all about all of that technology just doesn't matter very much if you just don't have the chips to ship at the the end of the day. And and I'll say, you know, it's a prime opportunity for the market and strategic business leaders to really question, hey, if I'm going to have a supply chain challenge anyway, why would I go with a system that is so generalized in applicability versus something that gives me a competitive edge if I'm going to have a focused strategic type of service like processing language? So in that case, you really start seeing the market open up away from any heavyweighted monopolies and saying, well, what are my options out there? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And moving to model development and expanding on, I, I really appreciate this anecdote that you came up with of the early internet and us not realizing that problems are problems yet because we just can't see this new world. But even expanding on what those problems might be in the model development phase, what are those problems we might see phased out as enterprises streamline AI infrastructure? Well, certainly, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we hear about both in the public sector and in enterprise is internally at Grok, we call this developer velocity, right? So if you look at a lot of the reports out there, it's kind of staggering to think about how long does it take a team of developers today to get a model up and running and moving into production for their business or their work group. And so there's certainly a movement that says, 
AI being able to generate code, write software is helping in a number of areas. But simply put, if you see the latest and greatest model that's a recommendation engine or anomaly detection or a large language model, many of these groups on average take around six months, somewhere between three to six months before they can actually get something running. And then they actually do the real work to get that ready for production. So, you know, obviously, if you're a big mega Fortune 50 corporation, they can do it a little bit faster. But what if you're the head of AI integration at all of the 7-Elevens across North America, which is fascinating. They now have these image detection systems at 7-Eleven in Silicon Valley where you can just put it down. It knows what it is. It puts the price on there. Well, yeah. guess what? I, I actually saw a report. On it. it took them almost a year to get that model up and running. And yeah, so wow. for developers to be able to get AI models into production, it's extremely taxing. This is part of the reason why our CEO, who was the inventor of the TPU for Google, this was why he actually started with the team on developing the compiler first, and then they started building the silicon around the compiler. We're actually the only company that has a symbiotic kind of relationship, or we like to call it an ecosystem, between our software and our hardware. It's completely deterministic, which means we get better efficiency out of the silicon and performance as well as simplifying the, the work that the developers have to do. So where many developers would relate to this, and maybe business leaders have heard this, you have the developer experience today, if they're running something on NVIDIA, they have to use CUDA libraries, right? And there's a great ecosystem from NVIDIA providing that to the developer community. But it is something that requires a lot of adaptation and change when you say, hey, we need to change the model, or we need to change the size of the system we're running this model on. They have to go back to their kernels and rework those, not entirely from scratch, but pretty close. We've heard some people even cite 80% or up to 80% of rework here. We don't have that at Grok because we're completely kernelless. So because something's built into our compiler, we don't use any kernels or have CUDA libraries or any of those experiences that developers have. Now, this scares business leaders because they say, wait a minute, this sounds kind of proprietary. Right. This sounds kind of special. Well, that's actually not the case. We use the native languages that ML developers use, like PyTorch. We work with Onyx, et cetera. And we, have, we even have a tool called Grokflow that allows you to, to take your models and map them directly to our architecture. It's actually a single line of code. And then there's a little bit of work after that. But because it's deterministic, again, which basically means there's this synchronicity between the hardware and the software. When we compile, which is the first stage, the performance you see at compile time is actually the performance you get at runtime. Now today, developers don't get that experience with graphics processors and traditional legacy systems. So what happens here is they might be able to get their model up and running, they get it compiling. Now they actually have to go off and run it in the system to see how it will perform. And then they start doing all this custom work with their APIs to be able to you know, tune that and customize that to get real performance out of it. This is why it's extremely expensive for developers and business leaders that, that have to invest in these systems on the software side. Right, right. And we've been going over a little bit of the solutions, but I want to turn back to the problems, especially now that we have infrastructure and model development in check. What are the challenges in 2023 that we're seeing when it comes to model deployment? Well, yeah. So, you know, what has everybody been doing for the last 10 to 20 years? Right. You know, we, we were in this information era and then we were in the data era and those overlap, obviously. But, you know, for a long time, it was 
look, just start collecting all the data you can. And then, you know, there was obviously massive enterprises built just around that. And then companies said, okay, we know what AI models look like. We want to train them. Well, now you train them using that data. As they learned more, they realized, hey, we want higher quality than this. We demand higher quality than this, right? Because it's, it's all based on probability and prediction. So what happened from there is saying, well, we need to make the model bigger. And you get into these larger parameter models. And you might have seen things like, hey, you know, there's there's Llama 7 billion, 13 billion, Vicuña 33 billion, now Llama 2, which is 70 billion, which, you know, that we run exceptionally well. As they started tuning with more and more data, they were doing what was called training. And training is kind of where everybody's been at. But when you're ready to deploy and move into production, you have to move into inference. And this is really where you start getting the ROI back on all that investment for training and all that investment for infrastructure because now inference is where you're actually delivering a service to your customers, to your end users. So that shift saying, okay, we now need to move from training to inference, that's a big shift for people. You know, this is where the rubber really meets the road. And so for us, this is why, although it was not the simplest path to focus on a deterministic system where from scratch, we invented an architecture and a software compiler that again, works synchronously, but we knew our, our CEO especially knew after his time at Google and, and inventing the TPU, this is where it's all eventually going to hit the crossroads. And so right there, business leaders might have AI ML teams right now that have been working on training, but it's a completely different shift to move over to that model deployment. Now, the second part of that is what I mentioned earlier. What happens if the model that you're using for your enterprise changes? Right. Right. I mean, the rate at which AI models are being developed today is, you know, software is literally going to eat hardware for breakfast. It's just, it's changing every single month. Now, what Llama Meta recently did with Llama 2, that was really exciting to make that open source and commercially viable. But business leaders have to be thinking, well, what happens if there's a Llama, you know, 3 that comes out in several months that's even bigger? What if there is a custom LLM that is, you know, 4x that? Do you want to go back and rework all of those kernels? Do you have to go back and rework your system? Do you have to think more about that power draw? These are the things that we've addressed by starting, you know, in a first principles mindset from scratch saying we've got to invent the hardware and software together so that we can have that rapid adaptability to serve the the change of the market. And business leaders are responding to that. The, The many that we're talking to are saying, yeah, I just don't think we can afford to make this scale of investment and then run the risk of finding out something has dramatically changed in a transformer class model six months from now or a year from now, and that we may need to be down for four, six, or even nine months to get this shifted, right? Right. That's just not the rate at the market today. And this is why we talk so much about real-time AI. It's not actually just the real-time nature of delivering me insights from your data. That's certainly the end user part. But actually real-time business reactions and what we can do. So, you know, this is, this is really a heavy area in the, in the area of model deployment. 
Absolutely. And I want to even go back to what you were saying about inference. I know when we were preparing for this call and and you were using this term instead of like talking about moving from development to production. And I think, you know, this is more than just marketing jargon. I think you're putting a very fine point on here and what the model needs to be able to do once it's in production with a, a bit of those predictive capacities. Just wondering if we could put a more technical definition on what you guys see at Grok of the difference between inference and production. Yeah. So, I mean, inference is literally where you're rolling out your model and the the model is running and you're getting these insights from the type of data that you're running, right? So, for example, right now, we just, we just had an announcement recently where we're running Llama 2. We're actually running it the fastest of any provider in the world, right? Over 100 tokens per second per user. And so, when you think about where this, this is going to matter, we had a previous customer case study that was a customer's name is Entanglement AI, and they actually were working with the U.S. Army on anomaly detection. And so now, to be fair to them, they wrote their own model. They've got their own quantum algorithms they developed. This was not Grok that did any of this. But they were looking for a solution where you could get inference rates that accelerated and advanced currently what the U.S. Army had. Now, they actually developed their system, gave it to the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army did their own analysis on this. And they came back and discovered that they had a 600x performance improvement over their existing system, which meant if you're observing a network and looking for all of the anomalies on that network, this is sort of a cybersecurity application. Imagine the ability to respond as threat analysts to these anomalies on your network at 600x the rate that you were observing your network before. Now, this is going to translate into millions, if not billions of dollars of savings from a cybersecurity solution in the market. But that, although brilliant with what they developed, it could not run unless they run it on Grok. And so this is where inference really, really matters when you say, hey, we're in production, but where does it have that impact? And this is where in some of these applications, you need to have this level of performance. And this is different than what you would run traditionally on a graphics processor or a CPU because language being near anything that is a pattern, right? So again, network observance is a pattern. Code is a pattern. Audio, music is a pattern. And our words are a pattern. To do that effectively, you can't generate the hundredth word in a phrase until you've generated the 99th word in a phrase. And so as these tokens are generated, that inference rate matters. Because imagine if you, I was a virtual assistant for you and I talked. I know. (laughs) You talked at the rate that 1998 websites would load their images, right? (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, even without getting technical, that's what it means to have that inference. Now, imagine you're you're a, a financial services company that hosts credit card transactions, right? You don't want your customer who signed up using your card to be at a restaurant and swipe that card and suddenly the waiter goes away, comes back two minutes later and says, sir, your card has been declined, right? right? And you go, that can't be right. Try it again. And it's, you know, and it, it probably wasn't because you didn't have a credit or didn't have money or any of these reasons. And this could be an ATM card even. You know, it could literally be in that moment that there's some sort of threat analysis going on saying, hey, this guy has never gone to that restaurant before. They've never been in that country before. They've never been in that place. So their system by default says, I'm going to deny it, right. right? That two minutes is pain for your customer, that end user. 
So you want those sort of detections to happen in milliseconds. And you want to be able to react to that through apps. Because now, like when my credit card gets declined, I, I travel all the time. So my credit card gets declined a lot. And then my app gives me a notification that says, hey, would you, would you know, are you in the right place? And I go, yeah, absolutely. And this is their two-step verification. And I say, yeah. And suddenly my credit card works again on the second pass, <laughs> right? Right. That's the rate of real time today. And inference literally translates to what is the real time nature of insight, response, reactiveness, and value that I get out of my systems for my customers and my end users. Absolutely. And just going back to what we were saying about the infrastructure problems, what needs to be in place in order to achieve that real-time data fluidity. You also brought up kernel of systems as ways that, you know, in your experience at Grok, you've worked with your clients to get past those challenges that keep infrastructure from real time. There's a lot of fail safes in this process. We talked about the supply chain issues. How are you seeing business leaders use data tools to address challenges in developing their infrastructure for these problems? Yeah, it's it's a lot like watching the movie Ford versus Ferrari, if anybody's seen it. <laughs> yeah, I love that movie. And, and one of the interesting things in it is get to performance. He literally starts looking at the car and saying, you know, what the hell can I rip out of here? And he starts ripping the passenger seat out and he starts ripping all the extra things out. You know, when you develop a technology that doesn't require you to have storage on board, doesn't require you to have routers and switches built into the system, our technology actually has a C to C component to it. And this is really, really interesting where our architecture, if you plugged in, let's say, 512 chips together through multiple nodes. Our system, every time you plug a chip in, it just expands the brain. It actually sees it just as a larger single chip. And so this is gives us a great deal of efficiency because we don't need to have all of these other elements like the switches, the routers, et cetera, to track and manage the data flow through all of this, you know, kind of like looking at driving in Delhi versus Manhattan of the overall system. You know, that traffic light system has to be managed in a way. So when you look at the data tools and what they use to manage the effectivity of their network topology, we don't have to deal with that because of the determinism, because of what we did when we developed the compiler and the hardware together. So this, in essence, is like trimming off all of these fail stages from within your system. And then all of the benefits that come from that, uh, less things that can break, less things that draw extra power, less things that you have to you know, manage, less things that you have to develop for. And so on top of the CUDA libraries and the kernels that are used in software, there's also that hardware component that when someone's watching their dashboard and saying, hey, how's my system running? You can actually see that we don't have to watch those things anymore. Absolutely. And I know when I was asking about problems in the model development phase, you were talking about how the importance of separating how models run into two stages, first compile and run and then deployment, how a lot of the status quo enterprise approach to this goes is that the deployment is usually in the dark. And we were talking before about one of the many advantages that Grok brings to the table is being able to not just deploy, but being having meeting the next standard of inference from that model being in production. It sounds like then, even where you have the two sides of these process split, you need to be running data 
on the deployment or on the compilation side to know how deployment's going to go. Tell us a little bit what are systems that business leaders can put in place in order to have a better idea of how the deployment's going to go. Yeah, so again that's that's one of those challenges where someone might be able to compile a model, it gives them an estimate of performance and then from there what typically happens is let's let's say that you're using a cloud service, right? For example, and you're you know thinking about deploying your custom model because it's trained and tuned to the particular content that you want to you, you want it to focus on as a developer. So what happens today is you have to think about provisioning or what you're going to pay for compute from that cloud service. So you can compile it and then say, well, you know, I know this is going to work on the system. This is about the range I think it will run. And there's tools out there that they can pay for to give them an estimate of, well, how much cloud usage based on this volume of data throughput is that really going to cost? Now that's an estimate and they won't really know until they run it. So now you have to see how good was the tool in its prediction, right? They're generally about 65, 75% accurate most of the time. But if you think about that, even if you were off by 10%, some of these folks are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, right? I saw an article that basically said ChatGPT to run their system for all of their users is $700,000 a day. And there was a particular analyst that said that. And so imagine just 10% off of that. Now that yeah. multiplied by 365 days starts to become a really costly venture, right? This is why a deterministic approach we believe is advantaged where when you compile on our system, you know exactly how it's going to run, right? And, and, and down to literally the one one hundredth of, of the time it will take to compute. So if our system's up in a cloud environment for you, you're not saying, hey, I need to provision for a thousand hours of compute this month. What you're saying is based on the averages of data that we see streaming through here with current customers, we know exactly how much time to the second, to the actually to the millisecond of compute that we will use. So now you don't run that risk of mass margin buffering for, for provisioning your compute time. So these are some of the, that, that advantage that, that you get from being deterministic or being synchronous between your hardware and software. Now, when people don't get that because they're using, again, the legacy incumbent systems, what happens from here is they start going to their software team and saying, guys, you know, we're all over the place on this runtime. What can you do to tune this a little bit better? I need more accuracy in performance so that I know what my budget is going to be every single month. And that becomes very costly at the developer level, right? And so, again, this is why we're really in existence to say you have to go back to a first principles thinking and think differently about how you stand up the system. And when you have that level of granularity in terms of what's going into your model development phase, everything, at least in deployment, becomes a lot easier to predict. Just on that note, I know we were talking about built-in anomaly detection before, but I'm wondering if we can touch on adaptability and scalability, especially in light of the fact that a lot of business leaders are hearing about these generative AI capabilities, very out-of-the-box advertising. You can deploy it in days. 
we don't recommend you think of it that way. It's, you know, we, this is this is the part of the conversation where it turns into, you know, if you're going to get a dog, you have to, you know, feed the dog every day. No, that's a lifetime commitment, even if it can be launched overnight. But in terms of the deployment, how can available data tools set new standards for deployment when you're starting to see these models roll out in days, not months? Do the transitions need to be that quick? And what does it take to get there? Yeah, that's exactly right. So when we started with the compiler, you know, for a, for a long period of time, we had about, I don't know, I would say eight to 12 models that were running on our compiler. And, and, and it was that way for probably about 18 months. And, and that work was really happening over the last like three years. There was a turning point, though, where because we were hand coding those models into the compiler, it was very labor intensive. And then some members of our team basically got together and said, look, we're using native programming methods like, you know, PyTorch and Onyx, et cetera. We know what our compiler's language is. Why don't we see if we can build a tool that connect these two? And so they built a tool called Grokflow. We actually have a video of this on our YouTube channel. It's on our website. We do lots of demos of this at events. And people are always blown away because we can take that model, put it into Grokflow. Basically, we go in and we say a single line of code, which is grok it, and it's, we use it as a verb to literally convert that over to the compiler. But what's interesting at that point in time is we can actually say, how many chips do you want to compile this for? Because remember, the more chips we add, it's just the bigger the brain it is. There's no right. management between the variance of the chips. So we get the model, we look at the size of the model, the parameters, and we say, well, look, it's this size. We know that that would require at least X number of chips. Put that number of chips in at a minimum. And shortly thereafter, it'll actually spit out and tell you what the compiler, the runtime would be based upon that number of chips. And now you can have a really good conversation with a customer where you say, look, this is how it looks like it's going to perform. How many queries or calls or user requests do you think you're going to have a day or per hour, et cetera? Or what is the volume of data that you're going to flow through this? And if that performance doesn't meet your need, and again, there's other parameters here like accuracy, quality, predictability, sure, et cetera, sure. power draw alone, right? But at this stage, we can say, hey, maybe you need to 2x the number of chips here. And we can put right. that right back into Grokflow, put that number of chips in and get that performance. So these new tools that are being developed are really powerful. The other one that's great for us, you know, great member of our team, his name is Mark as well. Him and his team developed a tool called Grokview. And this is really cool for developers. When they actually have their software and they're running it on a language processor from Grok, like our Grok chip generation one that we have right now, we actually have a tool that looks at the chip and can show you the lanes, the super lanes of how the data is moving east to west mm. over the silicon. So why does this matter? Well, imagine if you've got some very heavy mathematics going on, right? You've got matrix multipliers, you've got vector going on. And suddenly in your program, when you're running the data through and it's, it's doing the math on your data, you see it hanging up. You can literally see where exactly on the chip it's hanging up. And then you can say, well, why is that happening? And there's areas of the chip that handle certain numerics and there's other areas of the chip that handle other parts. So you can say, oh, maybe we need to reconfigure how this data comes in or how your model is shaped to actually get you that better performance. But you can physically see it and have that insight at the compile time, not requiring the run. Mm -hmm. So from here, you can get all of those things tuned up with these types of tools 
before you have to deploy for production with customers or pay for all of that provisioning up front when you're still not even sure, how are we going to improve this? So you want to do all of that work before you dive into the heavy, heavy investment of actually provisioning or standing something up on-prem. Absolutely. And just in terms of, you know, everything, you're, I, I appreciate that you're keeping this in the context of, of serving the customer. But if you're having all of this information, at least relayed to you about the challenges through the whole process, where where you stand in terms of the model development at all of these junctures, not only are you able to have a better idea of what the product is going to be for the customer, but you're also able to match your competitors in terms of parameter and output. And if you have at least that intelligence on, on what your competitors are doing. It's easier to at least match them in that way. But Mark, really, really great conversation. I think we've we've really gone over, at least through each step of the process, in a way I don't think we've done in prior episodes to really show in this entire pipeline where we see problems and solutions. Really great having you, and I hope you're back soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, Matthew. Really appreciate it. And if anybody wants to learn more, just let us know at Grok. As I mentioned in the introduction to today's show, this was the second episode in our Beyond GPU series. Don't forget to check out our September 2nd episode in which the series premiered, featuring Gordon Wilson, CEO of Rain, talking about finding ROI for AI at the edge. He brings up some really amazing use cases there involving industrial robotics and smart retail. Later this month, we'll be featuring Adam Burns of Intel, talking about AI hardware for computer vision, and then we'll wrap up the series on September 23rd with Peter Tu, Chief Scientist for Computer Vision at GE Research, talking about infrastructure and computer vision challenges in heavy industry. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast. <laughs>